Welcome to episode 216 of CXO Talk. I'm Michael Krigsman. I'm an industry analyst and the host of CXO Talk, where we bring truly amazing people together to talk about issues like the one we're talking about today, which is the role of AI and the impact on public policy, or maybe I should say the impact of public policy on AI. Our guest today, we have two guests, uh, Tim Persons, who is the chief scientist of the General Accountability Office of the United States government, and David Bray, who has been on CXO Talk many times, who is the chief information officer of the Federal Communications Commission. And uh, David, let's start with you. Maybe just introduce yourself briefly. Sure. Thanks for having me again, Michael. So as you mentioned, I'm the CIO at the FCC, which means I I try to tackle the thorny IT issues we have internally, as well as with our stakeholders, and work across uh, the 18 different bureaus and offices, and right now, the three commissioners that we have that are from both parties. And Tim Persons, you're the chief scientist of the GAO, and so please tell us what the GAO is and does, and what do you do there? That's right, Michael. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. It's great to... uh be on this venue and welcome everyone. Uh, I'm Tim Persons, I'm the chief scientist of the GAO and I, I uh, am here to essentially support uh, the Congress in any of the various science and technology, engineering, math-like issues that, uh, that face the Congress. Uh, GAO is one of the few congressional agencies. Uh, we actually changed our name in 2004 from General Accounting Office um, to the Government Accountability Office. And that was a subtle change, but important to be able to reflect the broad remit we have and the focus on accountability, which includes financial accounting. That's been our our bread and butter. But we now do a lot of performance auditing and and, uh, analyses on things like return on investment or program evaluation and things like that for uh, both uh, Senate and and the House, meaning we work for 100% of the House and the Senate committees, and then anywhere between 75 and 80% of the subcommittees. Broad remit indeed, and and I do soup to nuts science in that domain, including data science and other issues. Uh, the importance of GAO is just where the oversight, insight, and foresight um, analytic arm of the U.S. Congress. Uh, and so, in that regard, we do that ongoing day to day oversight. Any if there are any of you who are familiar with uh, or like to watch C-SPAN and various um, venues, there might be hearings of, of a panel on this or that, and you'll. Uh, normally, normally see key witnesses and so on from the federal agencies. And our job is to help support that oversight. But also, more importantly, is uh, how to do things, how to improve better government. That's the insight work that we do, as well as uh, the foresight piece, which is things to come uh, and the implications therein. And so in that regard, I even lead a small group of scientists and engineers Fantastic. Who, who do a lot of that sort of thing to support these uh, broad studies that Congress needs to hear about. So, I, you know, I think um, many people may not have heard of the GAO, the, the uh, Government Accountability Office. And I, when I used to study, there was a period of time I was studying and writing very extensively about IT failures and the quality of the research and the oversight that was put out by the GAO was just simply Excellent. So it's worth looking at the GAO website because it's an important part of the government in its in its oversight cap- its oversight um, capability. 
and mandate. So, Tim, why is the GAO interested in AI and the and the implications of for public policy? Right. No, great question, Michael. And uh, as you mentioned, all of our studies are on GAO.gov. Um, so AI is uh, an emerging and emergent technology. It has very disruptive implications. And uh, most of you all know that's a business term, the idea of disruptive. It, it changes the way we think and do things. And uh, the U.S. government, for all of its challenges in certain, certain areas, uh, also is a leading purveyor of innovation and sponsor of these sort of things. So uh, you think of the, the great advances that NASA brought about, for example, or things out of the services, of the, the armed services and so on. Many, many other things that, that the U.S. does uh, to help sponsor, promote innovation. And AI has been one of them uh, ever since uh, the concept came up in uh, a workshop in Dartmouth in 1956. So the idea has been around, but the U.S. government has been a primary investor in it, even though we now see a lot of private industry and, and, and monies going into things now to solve problems. But it's because of the, the sort of profound implications brought about by AI and the need to help the Congress uh, work in a more proactive manner rather than a sort of reactive uh, manner. Um, I, I typically like to say that most technologies have oftentimes a scary initial feel to them, oftentimes um, driven by uh, sort of the science fiction or the, the fun narrative of things. And AI is no different than that. Most of the, the public that you think about think about AI in some negative context like Skynet on the Terminator series or things like that. But there's a lot of uh, art of the possibility and a lot of promise and potential in this as well. And so I see it as my job is to discuss the opportunities and challenges and policy implications therein. And AI is a perfect time, perfect place to do that. And uh, David, you're also keenly interested in the policy aspects of AI. So maybe tell us about tell us about that interest. Sure. So at the FCC, when I arrived in August of 2013. Uh, we had 207 different IT systems all on-premise, consuming more than 85% of our budget. And if you looked at where the world was going with the Internet of Things, with machine learning, and yes, with AI, uh, that just was not tenable. And so in less than two years, we moved everything to public cloud and commercial service provider, which as a result re reduced our spend from spending 85% of our budget to maintain systems to being less than 50% on a fixed budget. But even more importantly, we reduce the time that it takes to roll out new services and new, new, new prototypes of offerings to the public that the FCC does from being six or seven months to if you come to us with new requirements now, we can have something in less than 48 hours. Now, I say that cloud computing is the appetizer for the main course, which is beginning to make sense of all the data that the Internet of Things will be collecting, and that the only way you can really do that is with a combination of machine learning and what some call AI and what we're getting out there as well. We've got to have a way of dealing with this tsunami of data that's going to be coming in and be that trusted broker between the public as well as public-private partnerships so that as a nation and as a world, we can move forward. So for me, the interest in AI is what experiments can we begin to do that show its benefit to making public service more responsive, more adaptive, and more agile in our rapidly changing world? Tim, what do you think about this notion of, uh, of experiments with AI to show what is possible and the benefit that it can bring? Uh, yeah, great question. I think it's uh, without which nothing. I think if you don't have an experimental sort of, I, I'm an engineer and scientist by training. So if you don't have this sort of experimental 
Let's uh, build safe spaces, as I'll call them, uh, mechanisms to pilot the technology and do these things, uh, as is happening in, in various areas uh, in, in elements of AI. Then I, I think you just can't um, you can't proceed forward. I, I don't see where you could possibly uh, innovate without the ability to uh, safely fail, learn quickly, and iterate, recycle, and and move forward. So is that a, uh, you know, it's funny you talk about that and one thinks about these things uh, failing fast. I don't like that term, but fail safely, experiment, iterate rapidly. One thinks about that as being in the private sector. Does the government have the ability to be agile in this this way? So I would say that takes strong leadership and whether it's a good chief scientist or a good chief information officer, um, I think our job is to make the case to the secretaries or the heads of our agencies as to, yes, we need to keep on with the trains running on times for these things. But if we only just keep the trains running on time and we don't innovate, uh, you'll get to where I got in a situation at the FCC where they had everything on premise. Their IT on average was more than 10 years old and they'd fallen behind. And so the private sector knows this because if they don't keep abreast of what's going on in the marketplace and staying uh, current and agile and nimble, they fall behind and eventually go bankrupt. I think the same thing is true in the public sector, which is if we don't, one, yes, we got to keep the trains running on time, but then two, doing experiments to deliver services differently and better, then we will fall behind. And so the art of a good C-suite officer to their secretary or head of agency is to make the case as to here are the things that we're going to deliver. Here are the things that we're going to try and pivot and learn from. And here's what you're going to get as a result. And I'll be the human flak jacket that can move that forward. Um, and I think that's true for any organization. I think that's part of the job of what Tim does. That's what I try to do at the SEC. Other CIOs, they're out there. You don't often hear from them. But they are really trying to deliver results differently and better to their leadership. And it's especially key right now because we do have a hiring freeze for most government employees. And so really the only way we're going to deliver results differently and better is if we figure out ways to make people more productive and that gets to machine learning and AI. Yeah. So Tim, uh, thoughts on this? Yeah, no, I was going to say, I think David said it uh, very well. I think um, it does take that key leadership. I mean, people don't get elected and appointed in DC uh, by saying, I'm going to fail on this sort of stuff. So I know, I'm, I, I know no one likes to say, I mean, naturally, we don't like to, to do that. But that is the way innovation comes about in terms of, let's try this. Okay, that doesn't work out. Let's try that. You, you always try and do best efforts on that. It's not intending to uh, you know, make a colossal mess of things. But I think uh, there's a reason that for all of our high-risk innovative agencies that have, have shown success over uh, decades of various advanced technologies. Uh, I grew up, for example, in the era of the space shuttle. That used to be really cool and and innovative, but that took a lot of testing by the NASA enterprise around the country and all the various centers. And it wasn't just like you threw a bunch of things on the launch pad and then, and then you know, hit the launch button with people inside of that. Uh, we obviously had painful national strategies with that as well, even with best efforts. But that is, that is where uh, the incredible amount of uh, innovation and advances that we came out of uh, just picking on the space program. I'm not even going into the weapons programs or the other uh, civilian side things uh, and, and things like, for example, what David's doing. We have a, a question from Twitter, and Arsalan Khan is kind of getting to the heart of the matter, and he wants to know, what can we use AI for? For example, can you use it to assess government contractor proposals? So, so where are we in terms of a, a practical use of AI? 
So that's a great question and one that I've been trying to beat the drum on. Uh, there actually is already right now, not in government, it's actually a, a public competition to see if anyone can write a machine learning algorithm that will evaluate real estate law as good as a real estate lawyer. And so that's about 70% accurate at the moment. Uh, as we know, California already is using machine learning to set bail decisions. And that's interesting because it can identify biases in historical bail decisions, but can also weed out things that should not matter to your bail hearing, like your height, your weight, your gender, or your race. Uh, there already is a successful example of using machine learning to grade papers uh, at the third grade level. So find the same sentence mistakes and grammar mistakes. And so, yes, I think... Can we have faster acquisition because now it's sort of complementing the human that's reading through these very long contracts and making sure they are actually legal and approved and they can be used. Uh, I'd also love to actually see AI actually be used to try and identify where can you identify the most effective employees in a workplace as well as those that are maybe being underutilized and can be used better. I mean, I'll, I'll defer now to Tim because part of what yeah. makes GEO so wonderful is they do both accountability as well as experiments. Right. Yeah. No, thanks, David. And, and we just did just to piggyback on that. We just issued, I'm just showing a little bit for the camera, but this is a report. It's fully downloadable on our website, GAO.gov, or you can just use Google and, and or your favorite search engine, GAO 16-659SP. Anyway, it's our strategic study we did on data and analytics. And it was just talking about data analytics and innovation, what's coming out of this. And uh, David and I, I think of these terms in terms of categorizing uh, the advances of data analytics and as it moves toward AI and really the overall datification of the U.S. federal government. And that's starting now. There actually is a law. It's called the Digital Accountability and Transparency Act or the Data Act. Uh, those of you who aren't in the know, D.C. likes to come up with clever uh, acronyms that embody the, the issue of stuff. And so this is one of them. And uh, Data Act is really just saying, look, federal agencies and departments, you are required to publish your spend data out in a in a standardized manner that you know you can now have data analytics coming up. Well, these are the initial steps that are necessary for the algorithms to be able to not only uh, collate the data but then start to do the the intelligent work on it that David was referring to. I mean, right now we're at spend, but uh, exactly uh, what he was just saying about HR data, things like how do we how do we more quickly identify our problems and have really a, a more empowered management approach to the various federal agencies. So just the day-to-day -day management of the government, I think there's big changes coming. I'm excited about those sort of things, but uh, obviously there's a lot of cultural issues. There are indeed technical issues, and there certainly are policy issues on that. And what are the um, what are the policy issues that come along with all of this? So, uh, yeah, go ahead, Dave. You want to take that first? Oh, well, I'm just like, where do you even begin? I think it's... It, it, really is it's 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 actually i think the p in policy is more for people and workforce um you have to remember if you go back to 1788 and james madison wrote in the federalist papers number 51 he said he wanted ambition to counter ambition and the reason why was he said is what is government but the greatest reflection of humanity if all men were angels no government would be necessary so we have this system of checks and balances that prevents any one person from having too much influence too quickly across the large public service enterprise. The challenge with that is AI does cut across the enterprise. It is transformative. And so we have this system of checks and balances that I think are good. It's what actually keeps our nation moving forward as a, as a republic. 
And at the same time, you have this exponential change being brought on through data, through the Internet of Things, through AI. And so the question is, how do you take an organization that was intentionally designed to have checks and balances and have it move forward with speed in a way that does bring people along? I think it's also the question of most of the workforce of public service, and I don't think this is the case of Tim or I or even 20% of the people that I know in public service, the premise was you come in, you move things forward incrementally, you keep the boat afloat regardless of who's president, and that's your proposition. Now what we're asking them to do is something that's game-changing, that's much more like the private sector, except we don't have an IPO or we don't have the same financial incentives of if you do a really good job, you can do your initial public offering. And so how do we motivate employees that are in a workforce that were hired for one thing, which was to keep the nation moving forward and encourage them to just keep the nation moving forward, but now think completely out of the box and be transformative. Yeah. And, and I would just add on the policy side on things. I mean, part of the, 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 the era of big data and data analytics is, uh, is challenged by uh, how powerful it actually is. Uh, there are studies like at MIT, at Cambridge, at UC Riverside, and so on, uh, all showing that just with sparse information publicly out there on places like Facebook, you know, four or five likes, you can profile a person uh, without knowing anything about it with very high fidelity uh, on, on various things. So actually, the it's almost too powerful in one sense. And so it does invoke this issue of uh, how do you mitigate against uh, the PII risk, you know, the personally identifiable information where you could resolve individual citizens? We, we do. We are a constitutional republic that needs to care about uh, uh, individual civil liberties and privacy rights and so on. And so that's one of the big issues. It's going to have to be uh, dealt with moving forward. Uh, on the cultural side, I think David put his finger on some key things, which is just we have to think totally differently here in the public sector. I would assert it, it applies private sector as well. Um, but just the idea of thinking algorithmically about things that we normally have taken for granted. And AI just makes us, we have to think, we have to think as, as a computer does, even though we want to train it to do something that, um, you know, and David and, and, and my decades of life, we have a lot of inherent knowledge that we didn't have to sort of program in. We picked up over time. But now there's opportunities to think about these. What are those things that tend toward uh, helping for greater efficiency and success and yet still I don't violate constitutional principles. So it seems to me there are, you're, you're raising two issues here. One is the issue of the role of public policy in terms of supporting AI, or conversely, it can inhibit the use of AI, the expansion of AI. And number two is the cultural dimension. How do we learn to think algorithmically? So how do we how do we change our thinking patterns in order to take advantage of these new technologies. Yeah, I, th I think that hits the nail on the head, Michael, that I try to use the word public service as opposed to government nowadays, because the time that it takes to send information between Topeka, Kansas and Washington, D.C. is no longer four days on horseback. It's now milliseconds. And so the way we used to do things, we had to account for communication maybe being slow or delayed and coordination being difficult. That's no longer the case. And so maybe there are things that we can involve the public and the public can do directly without requiring government professionals. Maybe there are things we can do as public-private partnerships where parts of the private sector are thinking beyond just their own individual bottom line, but are also thinking about local or national impacts. Um, and so what, the last thing we want to do when we move to these technologies, whether it be the cloud, the Internet of Things, or machine learning and AI, is to take the old way of doing things and just replicate it there. We're really talking about wholesale 
experiments on how do we deliver results differently and better given these new technologies and what they create as being possible. And Tim, your, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think that the uh, is absolutely is the, the policy will will often evolve after the technology does. It just comes upon. And I think uh, people are rightly concerned about the, well, let's just not knee jerk and regulate on something and sort of kill the innovation in the cradle, uh, so to speak. And so uh, I think there's optimism, though. There's good news. We have uh, a view right now in Washington where there's there's actually it's it's more open on uh, this particular issue. It's being led by some of the more um, near term um, uh, innovations and things. I, I'm thinking in this in particular on uh, autonomous vehicles and uh, our Department of Transportation. When you talk about our National Highway and Tran- Transportation Safety Administration or NHTSA as we call it in D.C., uh, is their safety regulatory body, and yet they are being proactive with. Uh, the Waymos and the uh, the Ubers and the the various even the car manufacturers on how can we get this right and how can we test this and how can we do this so that we're not just issuing a rule that comes out and says you know effectively kills U.S. competitiveness on that and so um, you know I'm not Pollyannish about this but I do think uh, there's a posture of recognition that we need to allow for some uh, managed risk in, in this innovative process without killing the ideas and yet trying to be as safe as possible. And so where does, who is actually responsible for striking this balance? How does it get done? And again, we're talking about AI and we want to create an environment that fosters AI. And yet at the same time, people have concerns and want to have certain types of controls in place. And and so that balance, and correct me if I'm wrong, is the province of government policy, essentially. Right. And, and in this case, let me just speak to it. It's one of these things. Our government is really set up to diffuse power and to, to have various elements uh, take care of uh, their uh, relevant mission spaces. OK, so let me say it a different way. Uh, it's going to devolve to the departments and agencies. So it's going to be context dependent. Um, Department of Defense is going to care about AI in terms of warfare and what's what's uh, allowable in terms of engaging in warfare, and, and there's no appetite to just turn over to a machine to go and do things uh, so that it's not just doing uh, national security things willy-nilly. On the other hand, uh, you may look over in the healthcare side of things, Health and Human Services is going to want to regulate, uh, and they care about these the health information privacy laws or the HIPAA Act, uh, which is how your and my personal information or medical um, information is kept private. And, and yet we still may want to be able to utilize these tools to aggregate data, come up with uh, quicker, better, faster, cheaper diagnostics and treatment options uh, for whatever maladies that may come our way. And so you're going to see evolution in the various different departments based upon their particular mission. David, you look like you're, you're, nodding, you're nodding in furious agreement. I'm in great agreement, and it's probably best that Tim answers that one since he's at the GAO. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I I would just I think even FCC, right? You want to manage various issues and things like that. I think AI for FCC, it's it's a customized type thing. It's there's not a generalizable AI. We're going to say here's this thing, and it's going to apply across the board. These things are going to be highly uh, sophisticated and contextualized. 
in whatever we're asking them to do. Agreed. I think that's that's key to our republic is our republic, as Tim said so eloquently, does aim to diffuse power to the specific missions of departments and agencies so they know context best. And so what I would say with looking at experiments for machine learning and AI is context, context, context. And so, again, I, I keep coming back to this point. What is the, the government role, the public, because we're talking about uh, public policy. And let me also mention that you are watching episode number 216 of CXO Talk, and we're talking about AI, artificial intelligence, and public policy. And we're speaking with David Bray, who is the chief information officer for the Federal Communications Commission, and Tim Persons, who is the chief scientist for the General Accountability Office of the government, which, which, by the way, does amazingly excellent work and analysis and research, if you're not familiar with it. And right now, there is a tweet chat happening with the hashtag CXOTalk. So uh, please join us on Twitter and you can ask questions as well. So, so getting back to this issue of the role of government and the role of policy, where are we today? What's the status of policy and AI and where should policy be going with respect to AI? So let me just talk just briefly about the government role, because this is in some sense, I'm speaking historically, there's the what has been, what is now and what could be moving forward. Uh, There's always been, I think, general agreement um, ever since the post-World War II Vannevar Bush, uh, you know, science uh, in the interest of society um, uh, memo that he that he had put out, which was really profound in terms of establishing the National Science Foundation and several are just our basic research uh, enterprise elements as we know it today. Um, Van Bush, when he was writing about that, is really just saying you're investing early stage science. Uh, it's uh, some might call it a thousand flowers bloom. You sort of sprinkle seeds of ideas at relatively low money. Uh, although aggregated, it could be large money, but um, you you try things out with our universities and our, our basic labs and things, and we have very good innovative system to do that. So uh, absolutely no controversy, really. That's bipartisan supported, the idea of doing that. And it takes a lot of the risk out of just expecting the private sector alone to just sort of explore those sort of things when there's a, there's a high degree of failure uh, in those sort of issues. Um, moving forward, though, the key thing oftentimes gets into the, well, creating, I guess I would call an infrastructure for innovation so that if uh, entities want to try and develop, how do they de-risk things as they look to scale and manufacturing in other particular areas? And so the government, that's often where it's debated about the extent to which the government projects into that or, or relies only on the private sector. But there are things like in the manufacturing innovation side, like the National Network for Manufacturing Innovation or NNMI. Uh, as an example of trying to bridge that gap in manufacturing innovation. Uh, and then when you look to sort of where it's operational, then that's where the government becomes uh, sort of regulatory rulemaking. And so you're going to have that there. We want, uh, if it's competing in a marketplace, you want it to be an even marketplace or a level playing field. If it's uh, operating safely, like I mentioned NHTSA earlier in transportation, you want to have safe operations so that autonomous cars aren't you know running over uh, living things or doing bad stuff and crashing and all of that. Um, and, and so those are key things the government has. But other than that, you want to be able to have uh, in, create the innovative environment for the economy to move forward, create jobs and, and allow for growth. 
We have a very interesting question from Wayne Anderson, and he directs this to Tim Persons, who is the chief scientist of the General Accountability Office. It's a hard question. He asks, uh, in a world where AI innovation may not succeed, how do you define investment efficiency? Yeah, great question, Wayne. Uh, the, the, the answer is... Um, oftentimes what's happened historically is when you've invested in this and AI has had, I I mentioned the 1960 Dartmouth workshop, but we're talking about decades of, and likely billions of dollars put into this in the basic research across the various elements, whether it's medical uh, basic research at NIH or whether it's uh, DARPA at defense or NSF and so on. Um, It is a good question about, well, how often or how long do we put money into that or when do we declare uh, defeat and and maybe do something else? Um, The short answer, there is no macro overarching center of authority who who sort of determines that. The closest thing in the executive branch is the Office of Science and Technology Policy, uh, whose previous director, Dr. John Holdren, was was, uh, appointed by uh, former President Obama. And he's there to sort of often coordinate and facilitate, but oftentimes not dictate and tell, for example, the Department of Energy, what they may or may not do in their research portfolio or the NSF or, or other things. He's very influential, or he was. Uh, however, that's not the same thing, again, as top-down. It's usually more diffuse and left to the agencies to do. So stopping and starting is, again, another one of those contextualized things. Uh, there is no uh, central authority on all of that, those, those issues. Um, I think the good news for AI is that uh, I mentioned the decades and billions uh, I think we have and will continue to see innovation and, and fruit come out of that. And I think that's cause for cautious optimism uh, in terms of the various things moving forward. So uh, I think the key question is, when should the government stop funding something, assuming private industries already picked it up? And uh, that's, a, indeed, a, a great debatable question that happens in the relevant committees on the Hill. And if I could add to that... Um... There's a historical analog. If folks are not familiar, they should should look at, there was this Project Corona, which was a satellite effort in the late 50s. And so this was before we ever had a rocket go to the moon. Basically, ARPA at the time, as well as the Department of Defense and the intelligence community, was trying to launch a satellite that would be able to take photos of Earth. And that effort had 13 rocket explosions before they ever even got something up there. And you can imagine nowadays, however, would we be willing to tolerate 13 rocket explosions before we finally got it? Because obviously it paid off. I mean, now, I mean, could we imagine living without Google Maps? And in fact, the early predecessor to Google Maps, the imagery it was using was actually from declassified Corona images. And so this is one of those things where, you know, how does Elon Musk decide where he's going to focus? He's probably going with a combination of analytics, but ultimately his intuition and his gut. Um, I think the same thing is true with public service, except it's many different people's intuitions and guts as opposed to one person and thus the distributed nature. Um, But like Tim said, AI has been through probably about three waves and we'll probably see probably another wave after this. And each time there's going to be things that'll have maybe that equivalent of 13 rocket explosions before they finally pay off. So we've so we've identified at least two dimensions of policy, it seems to me, during this conversation. Number one is uh, the economic investment policy, given the fact 
that it may not succeed, but it does hold a, a great deal of promise. We're talking about AI, but this could be true of any advanced technology, such as uh, going, you know, flights to the moon, uh, as David, David was just alluding to. And then the second is the, the role of government policy in terms of regulating AI or creating a, a legal and regulatory environment that either supports the development of AI and its proliferation or inhibits it. Is that, is that a correct uh, statement of, of the two dimensions of policy that we've spoken I, about? So this is where I will switch my hats and put on my Eisenhower uh, fellow to Taiwan and Australia role. And I will say that, yes, on that second part, talking about what one might be able to do with rulemaking, both Taiwan and Australia are recognizing that with new technologies like the Internet of Things and AI, traditional notions of rulemaking may not be able to keep up with the speed. And so I don't personally have any answers. In fact, I'd be interested in Tim's thoughts. We may need to do experiments, in fact, on how do you even keep up with the speed of these technology changes because the old way that was done may not be sufficient. Sure, I, I agree with that. I think there's going to need to be just innovation in the rulemaking process. Uh, a lot of times it's deemed to be often quite slow in things now, but that's just because of the federal laws that have been layered over decades of policy making that, that make it so, right? Um, there are ways, I think, to, to garner public input and so on, perhaps in this day and age, far more efficiently and effectively than perhaps traditional ways that, that we've done. But the, the, the relevant agencies have to get there. I'd also like to say I, there are certainly, again, clear and legitimate concerns about regulation uh, stifling innovation. But there's often uh, the case that's it's not thought of. Sometimes well thought out or contemplated regulation can help spur innovation in terms of, look, we, we know you, you ought not to do this. So here, let's design in this particular way to make this system work in this way. And I think um, some of the more creative activities I've seen are coming from that positive angle as well, not just the, you know, cut all regulation out. Because at the end of the day, I don't think anybody wants zero regulation and it's, it's completely and utterly a wild west at least i don't want to ride in an autonomous vehicle for example in that in that context but uh i i, I think that uh, there's a way to find out what's that baseline uh way of doing things and then supporting uh, efficient solutions to do that uh, and we're going to learn um so that that's how, that's all you you cannot uh eviscerate risk all the way up front in any enterprise period we have a, uh, another interesting question from Chris Peterson, who's asking, are there, what are the mechanisms or the, the pathways to gain uh, collaboration across agencies? And given the fact that you've just uh, been describing the context that each agency has its, its own needs, it seems to me that that will have a tendency to lead towards siloing and uh, duplicative efforts. And so what are the pathways for, for collaboration on innovation? So I would say that in some respects, you, you, you hit the nail on the head, that the, that the founders originally wanted uh, siloing in the sorts that it prevented any one person from having too much influence. But I think that is the challenge we face is these issues with a, the Internet of Things, machine learning and AI need to cut across. In fact, they do cut across domains. And so... Interesting enough, I'm going to put forward, and I'll be interested in Tim's thoughts, I think it's actually easier for agencies to partner with the public sector than it is for them to partner with themselves 
partly because there's what we call the, the color of money, the funding money, uh, you get into some very tricky rules and legislations that if I use my money in partnership with another agency's money, it, it, this is actually when GAO sometimes gets called in and is actually trying to account for the funds. And so I would put forward actually the more interesting model we may need to think about is, do we need to look at innovative public-private partnerships that maybe have different agencies contributing to it, but the center of gravity is with the private sector and the different agencies are being brought together and being convened there, as opposed to trying to do something that's just interagency in nature. So I'll be interested in Tim's thoughts. Yeah, no, I totally agree, David. I think that um, I, I'm the last president spoke heavily about public-private partnerships. That means a lot to a lot of people, so that that itself needs to, to be thought out in terms of what that means. But there is the art of the possible. Those things have gone on, and I agree. I think sometimes it's easier to connect, uh, I, I guess, externally with, with, with other entities, uh, even private entities, and, and, and build those collaborative networks uh, more so than among the federal sector. Now, not all hope is lost. There are times where there are formal coordinating bodies set up, either by statute or, or policy from the White House. Uh, there also are informal things, and I, I've often seen very effective, meaning among the federal entities. Uh, I will speak personally. I, I participate in the uh, chief data officer-like uh, community just in terms of, of doing things. We, we just had in the last, the last uh, administration a federal-wide chief data officer, and he, he was excellent and, and uh, really did a lot to evangelize the idea of data and analytics and what it means, and very powerful indeed. Uh, unfortunately, just the way we, we stovepipe things at our agency, the way the budgets run, the way the behavior is incentivized, we often are limited in terms of our ability to do that collaborative piece. And there is always a, an element of, well, I need to do my day job, but then I also need to coordinate and collaborate. And how do I know and recognize when to do that and, and build the partnerships to get things done, especially in today's 21st century complex adaptive uh, systems challenges like issues. Very quickly, because there's we're, we have about uh, just over five minutes left, and, and there's another topic that I want to talk about as well. But uh, very quickly, would either one of you like to offer your prescriptive advice to policymakers regarding how, uh, how they, we should be thinking about the role of public policy and AI? Would I, either one of you like to take that one? So, what's yeah, that? Yeah, so, so I, I'll do this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say I, I'm not going to offer a perspective. I don't think we're prepared to do that. I mean, I, I, we personally just I mentioned our data analytics study. We're kicking off an AI study just because of the importance of this. So uh, GAO will officially come out with some concluding observations on this sort of thing in, in, in time. So I'm looking forward to that. What I will say, though, is that I think the, the government does have a key role in partnership, I think, as David was elegantly talking about, just this idea of the partnerships that we can build, how we solve things in a collaborative networked manner, how we uh, focus on um, problem solving and not just uh, what we can and can't do uh, sort of things. And I think that we can create the environment where uh, the, the, this overall system together can, can be arranged to maximize a success in innovation in, in, in AI and, and minimize the undesirable outcomes. And I will add to that and say, again, I, I, I can't do prescriptive. That's actually not what my role is. But I can say, if you look at the successes we've had with the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, 
it might be worth asking, do we need a civilian equivalent that is bringing together these different agencies, but also working with the private sector? Because if we wait for the trickle down effect of innovations from the defense side with AI and machine learning to be brought into the civilian sector, we're gonna to be too slow. And so we may need to have a civilian equivalent of DARPA. And in fact, interestingly enough, there are some agencies that actually bring in more revenue than they spend. And so they could actually be a source of funding it with no additional tax increases or something like that to run this sort of civilian enterprise for advanced research projects in AI. Okay, so clearly the message, uh, one of the messages here is, is there a need for a civilian equivalent of DARPA and the role of public and uh, public-private partnerships in getting things done? But before we go, we have five minutes left. I would like to shift gears and talk about the role of the chief information officer in this age of very fluid and changing technology and very fluid and changing expectations of the CIO. And I know that historically, the CIO, CIOs in general, and of course, there's many exceptions to this, such as, uh, such as David Bray, but CIOs in general have gotten this reputation for being the keepers of the word no. The default is, you want something done? No, we can't do that. Can we do this? No, we can't do that either. We can't do anything. And maybe that's unfair. So thoughts, anybody, on the role, the changing role of the CIO today? So I'll give my real quick and then I'll defer to Tim. I would say oh. <laughs> in the past, CIOs, there are two types of CIOs, I think, nowadays. There are CIOs that still see their jobs as being chief infrastructure officers and just chief infrastructure officers. And those are the ones that are more likely to say no if it doesn't fit into their infrastructure. But I think if CIOs are really doing what they need to do to help the organization stay abreast of the tsunami of the internet of everything, the large increase in data, machine learning and AI, they really need to be thinking about a holistic strategy that is defaulting to yes, and then using a choice architecture strategy to say, how do we get there in a way that is innovative, manages the risk and moves the organization forward? And so you can already see this where you see the explosion of chief digital officers, uh, chief data officers, that's happening because CIOs are not providing enough strategy to this area. And so we really need the CIOs to step up and recognize that first and foremost, they should be partnering with their CEO or their head of their organization for how do they move the organization forward and keep it relevant for the next five years, 10 years ahead. So yeah, Tim, uh, Tim, please go ahead. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I think um, you, you have to view this in terms of, look, these, these folks have been essentially, they've become the chief infrastructural officers uh, for, for IT in there. And they have to have sort of a fortress mentality of protecting the, the data and things and given the rise of the hack and all the sort of stuff that's, that's going on. And that's going to continue to go on. I do think that from the CDO perspective, the data officer, it's now turning from looking at uh, where the CIO may see data as a burden, right? It's something I've got to protect. The more you have, the more I've got to protect, uh, the more it costs me. Even if I'm cloud, is I've got to, you know, I've got to buy more commodity storage for it or ship it around or do whatever, um, is, is changing that where the CDO is being brought in to say, look, let's look at that as an asset. As we datafy, how do we find optimization? How do we attack 
decisions that heretofore were quote uh, were relegated to the gut, so to speak, and and let's be dated and evidence based in terms of what we're doing. So, uh, you know, it, it is a challenging job. I don't want to be dis, uh, disrespectful at all. Uh, there just has to be some balance brought into that, so they're not um, they're not falling into the CI no trap, as as, as I think uh, you'll you'll hear about around departments and agencies. And if I can real quick in 30 seconds, I think it also depends on where the CIO reports. If the CIO is reporting to the chief financial officer, then you're going to get the no because they're thinking about it as cost. If they report to the chief operating officer, you're going to get no because they think about risks to the enterprise. If you get them reporting to the CEO or the CEO equivalent of their organization, then they're going to be more risk-taking, more innovative because the CEO at the end of the day doesn't want the company to ossify, does not want it to fall behind. And so really it's where do you have the CEO report to? But I guess my, my question here to, to either one of you is many CIOs, maybe most CIOs recognize that they need to be providing a, at least they have it in their mind, they the awareness that, the, or in theory, that they need to be providing a, a strategic benefit to the organization. And yet there's a very big disconnect between that awareness and the execution of that in practice. And so what advice or, or how can we overcome that gap to help CIOs not just think about partnership with the business, but actually do it in a meaningful way? Yeah, I think David brought up a good point about, you know, reporting to the agency head or the, the CEO equivalent and so on. I think you have to come from it with a problem solving approach. It's the, uh, it's the how might we do something rather than, you know, may we or it's a mission-based thing that is that always matters policy and rules are there there's laws there for a reason but we have to say look here's the problem and oftentimes just defining the problem well is is a very important but often neglected step one and then coming up with collaborative solutions which may invoke of course reaching out to the the private sector and allowing the cios to feel uh, empowered to do that instead of uh, you know one of the risks is, is becoming too, uh, too much box checking, as it were, on, okay, yeah, I did this, I did this, but that may, that, that may unintentionally limit you, but make you feel like you're, you're where you need to be, so. And I would just add to that, again, it, it really, I think you'll probably find those that know it, but don't deliver it as much, don't have as strong a connection to their CEO. It's when you're close to the CEO and the CEO is imparting the things they want to try, and as Tim said, can we be creative problem solvers in the face of rapidly changing world? That's when you'll see those CIOs actually be willing to be a CIA yes as yeah. opposed to an alternative. Okay. And on that, this very uh, fast and interesting 45 minutes has drawn to a close. You have been watching episode number 216 of CXO Talk. We've been speaking about AI and public policy and then a little uh, interlude on the role of the CIO, an interlude at the end. So maybe it's not quite an interlude, but in uh, sort of an ending lude. And uh, we've been speaking with David Bray, who's the CIO for the Federal Communications Commission, and Tim Persons, who is the chief scientist for the General Accountability Office. Thanks, everybody, for watching, and thank you to our guests, and we'll see you again next week. We, next week, we have a show on Monday and a show on Friday, so we have two great shows. Bye-bye, everybody.